Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, we're going to return to a theme I did in a couple previous episodes and call this one the story of the spleen and explore the history of this sometimes overlooked organ. If it upsets you that this purple little fist-shaped blood filter is not appreciated, then this may help you vent your spleen in this episode of Legends of Surgery. So let's start way back in the 3rd century BCE with one of the earliest anatomists and someone we've met before. The Greek-born Erasistratus, who along with Herophilus, founded the famous school of anatomy in Alexandria, Egypt. He was one of the first to describe the spleen, but believed that, apart from maintaining symmetry of organs in the upper abdomen, opposite the liver, the spleen had no function. One article I read suggested that, as the Middle East and North Africa would have had endemic malaria, splenomegaly, or enlarged spleen, would have been very common, making it seem closer to the size of the liver than it otherwise would. Now Hippocrates, a century later, had described his system of the four humors, which again we've covered in a few different episodes, but just to refresh your memory, these are blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. In the Hippocratic system, the spleen was the source of black bile. An excess of such would make someone sad or depressed with dark and angry thoughts. Hence the modern saying of venting your spleen, meaning to air one's grievances. For any Shakespeare fans out there, a similar use comes up in Richard III, where the titular character says, to fire up the troops, quote, Our ancient word of courage, fair St. George, inspire us with the spleen of fiery dragons, end quote. And one more fun fact for you to dazzle your friends and colleagues with, and I believe I have covered this before, but it's worth repeating. The word melancholy comes from this belief in black bile, as that is the same word translating to melano, meaning black, such as in melanoma, and coli for bile, which gives us the surgical terms like cholecystectomy, removal of the gallbladder. Now Galen added to the ancient beliefs about the spleen by giving it a function in the digestive system, a misunderstanding which held for 1400 years. He stated that humors that were unsuitable would be discharged by the spleen into the stomach through a canal. Now, anyone with a passing knowledge of the digestive system knows that there is no such canal, but like many of Galen's anatomical errors, belief in this structure persisted until disproven by Vesalius. And for more about this master of anatomy, see podcast 81. As we know, the humoral theory persisted for centuries, but a simple experiment would disprove the ancient belief in the importance of the spleen. This takes up to the 1600s CE and reconnects us with Sir Christopher Wren, architect of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, astronomer, mathematician, and anatomist. Now you may recall from the episode on TPN called None Per Os, episode 95, it was Wren who first infused substances intravenously in 1656. Anyways, while working at Oxford in England, Wren removed the spleen of a number of dogs and demonstrated that they would survive with no ill effects, disproving the Hippocratic belief in the necessity of the spleen as part of the humoral theory. But what does the spleen do, and when did we find out? Let's start with a very quick review of the anatomy and physiology of the spleen, as this will come in handy later. Now, the spleen is a soft organ with a thin outer covering of tough connective tissue called a capsule, which is the bane of trauma surgeons everywhere. Now, one handy rule I came across helps to remember its size, weight, and location, although, please note the units are in Imperial. 
It is called the 1 by 3 by 5 by 7 by 9 by 11 rule. The spleen measures approximately 1 inch by 3 inches by 5 inches, weighs around 7 ounces, and is positioned between the 9th and 11th ribs, on the left side of the body, of course, in case you've forgotten. It contains two main regions, the white pulp and the red pulp. The 17th century Italian anatomist Marcello Malpighi thought that the white pulp of the spleen appeared to have glands, which we now call Malpighian corpuscles, or bodies, and thought that they created secretions that were then carried by the bloodstream to distant sites in the body, which was wrong, but a clever insight which would be seen later in the discovery of hormones. These bodies are, in fact, nodules of lymphoid tissue, meaning collections of immune system cells. In fact, most of the white pulp consists of immune cells, making the spleen the largest secondary lymphoid organ in the body, containing about one-fourth of the body's lymphocytes, and playing an important role in the body's immune response to antigens, or foreign particles like bacteria, that are in the blood. The function of the red pulp, long thought to simply be masses of tissue fibers, was revealed by none other than the famous surgeon Theodore Billroth, see episode 39. He realized that it contained specialized cylindrical capillaries with gaps in their walls. We now know that these structures, called the cords of Billroth, are made up of connective tissue, immune cells known as macrophages and monocytes, and of course these capillaries, which empty into large venous sinuses. Red blood cells have to squeeze through these gaps, and if they are irregularly shaped, for example in sickle cell disease, or old, senescent to use the medical term, they are removed from the circulation, broken down, and their iron reclaimed. In fact, part of the spleen's job is to store this iron and recycle it back to the bone marrow to make new red blood cells. Okay. I had an idea for a new feature for the podcast which makes it a bit more interactive rather than passive listening. I call it getting pimped. Basically, I ask you a medical question about some obscure trivia, and you try to figure it out in your head before I reveal the answer. Ready? Here we go. What is the average lifespan of an adult human red blood cell in days? 120 days. And speaking of blood... One of the other functions of the spleen is to hold a reservoir of blood, around a cup's worth, which can be released in the case of significant blood loss, for example in trauma. And here's a free bit of trivia for you to use at your next cocktail party. During periods of inactivity, seals and horses can sequester up to half of their red blood cell volume in their spleens. One of the benefits of this is to reduce the viscosity of the blood, as there are fewer cells in the plasma so the blood is less thick which makes easier work for the heart. The American physician Benjamin Rush of Rush Medical College, who served as the Surgeon General to the Continental Army and signed the Declaration of Independence, suggested that during a rage, aka venting your spleen, the spleen would become engorged, thereby reducing blood volume and preventing apoplexy, which is essentially a stroke. Turns out he had this backwards. All right. Let's wrap up the physiology bit of the spleen with one last function. It also clears out old platelets from the blood and acts as a reservoir for these cells that help form blood clots. So in the most basic terms, the spleen is both a blood filter and a part of the immune system. So now that we know what the spleen does, let's talk about the story of its removal. Now for much of history, the question, is the spleen necessary for survival, was debated. And the only way to find out was to experiment. By the 1600s, there were several accounts of splenectomy on animals, including the previously mentioned example with Christopher Wren, proving that the spleen was, at least, 
not required for life. In fact, Malpighi, mentioned earlier, was one of those experimenters and gave one of the first to describe this procedure. Quote, In a dog of as yet tender years, a wound was made in the left hypochondrium, which means beneath the ribs, and the blood vessels of the protruding spleen and attached omentum were ligated with a thread close to the hilus of the spleen. Everything was presently replaced in its former position. The peritoneum and the muscles were sutured and the skin loosely united, end quote. Malpighi's dog survived the operation, end quote. So long as it lived, no trace of interference with health could be observed, end quote. The first description of a splenectomy in a human, at least in Western literature, was one performed by Adriano Zaccarello in 1549. The patient was the wife of a Greek captain named Matteo. Her name does not seem to have been handed down to us, at least from my sources. Anyways, the description given was that her spleen had enlarged so much that, quote, it caused both legs to be very badly ulcerated, and the poor woman could hardly live longer, end quote. The physician who chronicled this event, named Leonardo Fioravanti, assisted and gave this account of the operation. Now, it's a longish description, but it certainly gives some insight on how surgeries were performed in the 16th century. Okay, here we go. Quote, I went to see the lady and made preparations with her and her husband, and having done so, went to the justices to give her up for dead as is usually done. After having permission, we went one morning to the lady's house. The good old man took a razor and cut the flesh above the spleen, which, being cut, came out of the body. We went on separating it from the reticulum and took it all out and sewed up the flesh, leaving only a small opening. I dressed it with mixed oil of hypericum, incense powder, mastic, myrrh, and sarcocola, and ordered her a drink of boiled water with ordinary honey, comfrey, betony, and holy thistle, and every day I made her take a dose of theriac. So I continued to relieve her in such a way that the poor woman in 24 days was cured and went to Mass at the Madonna de Miracoli near the Dogana and was safe and sound, end quote. Now, many historians doubt that this account was factual, which seems fair. But prior to 1800, there were only a handful, or by some estimates 10, examples of surgeons who had attempted this operation. Some of the later more detailed accounts were related to incidents of trauma, often occurring due to war. The first reported American splenectomy was performed by a surgeon named O'Brien in 1816. I will read to you an account, but be warned, dear listener, the details are upsetting, so skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. Okay, ready? The patient was a 39-year-old named Joseph Gamez, who was in the act of committing a rape, when, quote, the wound was inflicted on the left side, under the last floating rib by a large clasp knife, such as is generally carried by natives in the boot, and which was snatched from the villain at the moment of the assault. It is probable that the female still kept hold of the knife after it was plunged into the man's side and considerably enlarged the wound. For, on the knife being withdrawn, the spleen protruded, end quote. This protruding part of the spleen was ligated and the patient was discharged after 20 days, and presumably charged. The first elective splenectomies occurred in the 1800s by a number of surgeons, initially simply for masses found in the abdomen, and later for patients with enlarged spleens due to leukemia. The survival rates were not good, putting a chill on this operation. However, as our understanding of the pathophysiology of splenic disorders improved, other indications, along with better and safer technique, led to greater success. 
Now, today, there are a number of indications for splenectomy beyond trauma, including but not limited to tumors, some types of lymphoma, red blood cell disorders, including sickle cell anemia and thalassemia, idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, which is where the patient's antibodies attack platelets, and storage disorders like Gaucher's disease, among others. But with the rise in splenectomies, which some actually attribute to the increased incidence of blunt force trauma that came with the rise of the automobile, a new unexpected problem emerged. In 1929, a British doctor published the first reported case of a death post-splenectomy in a child, years after the operation for hemolytic anemia. As an interesting aside, the patient's father also died of sepsis years after undergoing splenectomy for the same condition. By 1952, a report of five cases of fulminating sepsis among 100 infants less than a year old, all who had undergone splenectomy for spherocytosis, which is an abnormality of red blood cells, brought the issue to the forefront. Now known as OPSI or OPSI, overwhelming post-splenectomy infection, it is often caused by encapsulated bacteria like Streptococcus pneumoniae and Haemophilus influenzae. Now, this has led to the use of prophylactic antibiotics and vaccination as prevention in asplenic patients. This led to more conservative treatments of splenic disorders, including a rediscovered technique by a relative unknown surgeon working in Brazil. Now, the great 19th century French surgeon Jules Pien, for whom the Pien hemostat is named, described performing a partial splenectomy. Quote, in spite of the extent of the incision, the complete extraction of the tumor was rendered impossible because of its situation, and I had to think of removing it in pieces. Considering the disposition of the arterial system of the spleen, which divides it into independent segments one from the other, we proceeded with successive ligation of the various branches of the splenic artery to isolate that portion of the spleen which bore the cyst, end quote. Yet another example of the importance of anatomical knowledge in the practice of surgery. Now, in 1962, roughly 100 years after Peen's report, the Brazilian surgeon Campos Cristo reported a series of partial splenectomies, demonstrating that segmental resections following traumatic injury was possible and showed no complications afterwards. This paper became one of the most cited articles in the discussion of conservative approaches of splenic surgery. And the next step in the evolution of splenic surgery occurred in 1992, when a group at Cedars-Sinai reported the first cases of laparoscopic splenectomy, and many others soon followed. While the development of our understanding of the spleen and operations upon it would continue on, we have to stop here. Let's end with the words from an editorial in 1971, which opened with the statement, quote, Medicine is not an exact science, and nowhere is this observation more appropriate than in the operating room when a spleen is being removed, end quote. Okay, I think we have time for a quick Suture Tales episode covering the tale of a 19th century showman that impacted the history of anesthesia and therefore, of course, surgery. Quincy Gardner Colton was born in 1814 in Vermont to a large religious and poor family. Beginning his working life as a farmhand and chairmaker, Quincy then received financial assistance from his older brother to attend the College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York in 1842, at the relatively older age of 28. However, this only lasted for two years, whereby he chose to, quote, throw physic to the dogs, end quote, and left the school without a degree. From here, Quincy decided to make a career out of lecturing on chemistry and natural philosophy, including the topic of nitrous oxide. 
Now remember the first use of nitrous oxide for surgery had not yet occurred, but was just around the corner. Quincy was familiar with nitrous oxide from his student days, but more as the famous laughing gas used for entertainment, likely more for the user's friends than the user themselves. In fact, while in medical school, Quincy knew how to make the gas, which he did for his fellow students, and they, quote, had lots of fun with it in the anatomical lecture room, end quote. At the suggestion of a classmate, Quincy put on an exhibition of the gas in the Broadway Tabernacle to make a bit of cash. Tickets cost 25 cents each, and between three and 4,000 people attended. Due to the initial success of this exhibition, Quincy put on a series of shows throughout New England, leading to the seminal event. On Tuesday, December 10, 1844, an exhibition was held in Hartford, Connecticut. Here's a description of the event from an advertisement in the Hartford Courant. Quote, A grand exhibition of the effects produced by inhaling nitrous oxide, exhilarating or laughing gas, will be given at Union Hall this Tuesday evening. Forty gallons of gas will be prepared and administered to all in the audience who desire to inhale it. Twelve young men have volunteered to inhale the gas to commence the entertainment. Eight strong men are engaged to occupy the front seats to protect those under the influence of the gas from injuring themselves or others. This course is adopted that no apprehension of danger may be entertained. Probably no one will attempt to fight. The effect of the gas is to make those who inhale it either laugh, sing, dance, speak, or fight according to the leading trait of their character. They seem to retain consciousness enough to not say or do that which they would have occasion to regret. Note that the gas will be administered only to gentlemen of the highest respectability. The object is to make the entertainment in every respect a genteel affair, end quote. In attendance that night were Horace Wells, a local dentist, and Samuel A. Cooley, a druggist's assistant. Cooley was one of the lucky ones to get a chance to inhale the gas, and while under the influence, bruised his shins badly. When he returned to his seat, Wells said to him, You must have hurt yourself. Cooley said that he had not felt a thing until the effects of the gas had worn off. Wells then said to Colton while leaving the exhibition, Why cannot a man have a tooth pulled while under the gas and not feel it? They agreed to attempt this very thing the next day in Wells' office, and a neighboring dentist named Dr. Riggs pulled a tooth from Wells, who afterwards said, quote, It is the greatest discovery ever made. I didn't feel it so much as the prick of a pin, end quote. Now, there is some debate over the specifics of the event I just described to you, but the basic gist is the same. Wells was convinced of the anesthetic properties of nitrous oxide, and as you may recall from one of the earliest episodes of the podcast, it was Wells himself who went to Boston to demonstrate this in front of students at Harvard Medical School in January of 1845. And in an interesting twist, which certainly altered the course of anesthesia and surgery, the demonstration failed as the patient cried out in pain, leading to Wells being hissed out of the room by the students as they shouted humbug. Now on October 16, 1846, Surgeon John Collins Warren, the first dean of Harvard Medical School, removed a tumor from the neck of Edward Gilbert Abbott under inhaled ether. When the patient regained consciousness, Warren asked how he felt, to which Mr. Abbott replied, quote, Feels as if my neck's been scratched, end quote. This led Warren to turn to the audience and say, Gentlemen, this is no humbug a reference to the previous failed demonstration of nitrous oxide as an anesthetic. Now, as for Colton, he continued with his lectures on chemistry and natural philosophy, as well as occasionally speaking on the topic of laughing gas. 
He also got involved in the telegraph. He was friends with Samuel B. Morris and was involved in the first telegraph message ever received in New York and was the first to conceive of the idea of an electric engine that could be driven on a track. Colton then went out west following the gold rush and became the first justice of the peace for San Francisco. He later returned to the eastern part of the U.S. and resumed his work with nitrous oxide as an anesthetic, opening the Colton Dental Association in July 1863 in New York City. While there were many critics, as some of the complications of nitrous oxide use came to light, he vigorously defended its use in dentistry and surgery until his death in 1898. However, he did credit Wells with the discovery of its use for anesthesia, stating, quote, If I am remembered at all by posterity, it will be on account of my connection with the discovery of anesthesia. I do not claim that the discovery originated in my mind, only that I was the occasion of the discovery, and that I gave the nitrous oxide gas for the first surgical operation where pain was destroyed. End quote. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, I have a number of topics in the hopper, so to speak. So, in the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.